0: Season's greetings and welcome back to another episode of the Lessons from the Cockpit show. I am your host, Mark Hissera, and for over 24 years, I was an Air Force KC-135 pilot and got to do some extraordinary things with some really, really great people. I was the chief of the air refueling control team managing all tankers in theater in the Middle East for Operation Enduring Freedom and the Shock and Awe campaign of Iraqi freedom in 2003. On the Lessons from the Cockpit show, we talked to some of the most fascinating and intriguing pilots, aircrew members, maintainers, and aviation enthusiasts from all over the world. We want to hear their stories of the tactics, techniques, and procedures that they created and cultivated in those extreme and extraordinary military, commercial, and even private flying operations. But most importantly, what did they learn from these experiences that they went through? From this exploration, it gives our listeners a practical advice on how does the aviation world work and expands critical thinking skills both in the air and on the ground. Many of these stories are being told here on the Lessons from the Cockpit Show for the very first time. The Lessons from the Cockpit Show is supported by Wall Pilot custom aviation art for the walls of your home, office, or hangar. These are very detailed aircraft profiles printed on vinyl that you can peel off. They come in four, six, eight feet. We even did a 40-footer for one customer. And we can do custom profiles of your airplane with the weapons load unit. Patches, tail numbers, whatever you want on them. So go to wallpilot.com and look at the 127 ready to print airplanes that we have up there now, or order something custom like your F 15E or F 14 that you've always wanted to have on your wall from wallpilot.com. We've achieved kind of a landmark today. This is episode number 50. And I just want to thank all of you for tuning in, listening, and downloading these episodes. As I mentioned to you last week, we're going to talk about time-sensitive targeting, what we call TSTs. I'm going to give you the definition of it what we do with time-sensitive targets, how we find them, basically go through our kill chain that we used in the 2000 timeframe of find, fix, track, target, engage, assess. And I'm gonna give you some examples that I was involved with of time-sensitive targets that made the news <laughs> that were actually splashed across the newspapers and CNN because I was involved with the Door farm strike on Saddam Hussein. So grab an adult beverage of your choice. Sit down, strap in, and let's begin a discussion on time-sensitive target and how we basically go out and hunt people and things. From the dawn of time and in the Bible, when Cain slew Abel, men and women, when they have gone to war, have looked for more effective and efficient and faster ways to kill people and break things. And of course, weapons have evolved over that, where we're basically fighting man to man, woman to woman with swords, slings, stones, slings being a longer range weapon to now intercontinental ballistic missiles with the firepower to wipe out entire cities, even civilizations. After the Vietnam War, the Air Force took a really hard look at the kill chain. How do we find, fix, track, target, engage, assess, our combat operations? How do we do it faster? When we find some perishable target that's going to go away soon, how can we put warheads on foreheads quicker and do it more effectively and efficiently? Air Force doctrine began including time-sensitive targeting and time-critical targeting. Time-sensitive targets are those things that got to be hit right now. And I think that goes back to the definition of TSTs that we have in our current joint publications. And let me read that to you just here real quick. The definition according to our joint publication one of definitions Time-sensitive targets, or TSTs, are targets requiring immediate response because they pose or soon will pose a danger to friendly operations or are highly lucrative fleeting targets of opportunity. You have a very small window to go after something that truly puts your operations or your forces in danger, or some really high-value target has popped their head up for a few moments. You know where they are, you were able to geolocate them and you need to drop a bomb on their cranium right now. If you cannot strike that target within that window, it's probably gonna disappear and you're gonna have to search all over for it. I'm gonna give you kind of an example of the types of targets we're talking about. The first one, danger to friendly forces. Perfect example, a surface to air missile site. Particularly one that's mobile and is going to shoot and scoot from one location to the next. Another example is from the Israelis' experience, where they went after two nuclear reactors. One in Baghdad called Operation Opera where a bunch of F16s went up and took down the Baghdad reactor and then the Israelis did it again in September of 2006 to a reactor that was built by the North Koreans along the Euphrates River near a town called Derizor. The Israeli Air Force strike package that consisted of 2-seat F16I Sufa's and F15E Strike Eagles went to this Derizor site in the middle of the night and basically blew it up, blew it to smithereens. And within a month, the Syrians had completely demolished this nuclear reactor and actually bulldozed the whole site so you couldn't see it anymore. These are examples of, Time-sensitive targets that may pose a danger to your operations, your troops, or maybe the population of your country. Second type of target, highly lucrative fleeting, something that's going to disappear if you don't strike it now. There's a very narrow window for you and your forces to put warheads on foreheads. An example of this is people, bin Laden, Saddam Hussein. Uh, Qasem Soleimani, the Iranian general. And we're going to talk about those airstrikes because I was involved with TSTs on bin Laden and Saddam. I was out of the military by the time we struck Qasem Soleimani near Baghdad. But I'm going to talk a little bit about that, too, because I found a great article by the Israelis on that particular drone strike. A TST is basically an airstrike against people or a thing. and that's really And that's really the bottom line of TSTs. We got a very narrow window to go destroy something or someone. And I want all of you listeners to understand these things are intense. The emotions, the, your feelings, the things you're thinking are very intense when you're involved in this TST kill chain. I'm using our 2000 time frame doctrine to talk about this. And in our doctrine at that time, the Air Force's kill chain was find, fix, track, target, engage, assess. That's kind of the wheel of motion that we went through when we're doing TSTs. All of this is driven by intelligence. Our 2002 National Security Strategy even said in it that we may not have really solid intelligence on something, but that's not gonna stop us from acting. And as you know, we've gone after Bin Laden, Saddam, and other people, and sometimes the intelligence hasn't been as accurate as we'd hoped it would be. Sun Tzu's chapter 13 is on spies and spying, and he could not have envisioned the kind of equipment that we have now that can help us spy on other people. But there is one line from chapter 13 of Sun Tzu's Art of War that I want to share with you, and it says, Thus, what enables the wise, sovereign, and good general to strike and conquer and to achieve things beyond the reach of ordinary men is foreknowledge. And now we have everything from space-based satellites all the way down to a special forces soldier that is overwatching some town or door in some village somewhere waiting for some high-value target to come out. This type of spying is also mentioned in Sun Tzu's chapter 13, where he said, Spies are the most important element in war because on them depends an army's ability to maneuver or move or to find targets. Sun Tzu also defines five type of spies. A local spy, somebody that lives in the area. An inward spy, somebody that's part of an inner circle of like Saddam's group. Converted spies are double agents that are giving you information. Doom spies, those that know, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to gather all this intelligence, but I may not live through it. And of course, surviving spies are those that come back with uh, some pretty incredible stories to tell. In chapter one of Sun Tzu's book, The Art of War, he has what he calls his five constants. And he says, any general that understands these five elements of war will be successful. The first one is the moral law. Why are we doing this? Can we do this within the law that is set? And as you know, we have... An entire manual that has the law of warfare in it. The second constant factor is heaven. That's dealing with things like the weather. The third constant is earth, where you're dealing with terrain. The fourth constant is the commander. Are you working for a good commander? Are you working for a tyrant? Who is the one giving you orders? And the last one, the fifth one, is called method and discipline. How are we going to prosecute a target that presents such a danger to our troops, but we've got such a narrow window to attack it? Now, I understand the art of war was written, what, 2,500, 2,700 years ago, but all of these things still apply. And I'm trying to give you some background from doctrine that we have right now and doctrine that we had 2,500 years ago that is applicable to attacking time-sensitive targets that pose a danger to your troops or are high-value fleeting targets. And this is just to kind of give you a foundation of how we do this, why we do this, and some of the things that we have to think about when we're going after some type of time-sensitive target, a thing or a person that we know we have a narrow window to attack. With that foundation and that background, let's dive right into some time sensitive targets that are truly an amazing thing to see and be a part of. And I'm gonna go back to the war in Kosovo for the very first one that I was involved with because I was the guy that was running the gas. And when you're doing time sensitive targeting, sometimes it takes a lot of gas because you either have to go in really quick and strike or you have to wait until the target Appears in a place where you can actually drop the bomb and kill the target without collateral damage to those people and things that are around it. There's a rule that I learned from my Navy buddies that they live by that I learned very early in my career, and that is the first one who radiates dies. If an opposing force turns on a radar, talks on a phone, even turns their lights on at night, we're going to find it. And we have all kinds of assets that can help us do this, from space-based to air breathing. The RC-135 is a great example of an electronics intelligence collection airplane. The U-2 spy plane is also an incredible asset when it comes to finding and fixing targets. And in this case, we had both RC-135 and U-2 spy planes flying in the area when in Kosovo, one of these mobile SA-6 gainful sites that operates with what's called a target tracking radar, called a straight flush radar, happened to pop up in the middle of some field out in the middle of Kosovo. The RC-135 and its electronic intelligence uh, systems, the RC-135 and its electronic intelligence systems, were able to fairly pinpoint pretty close where this straight flush radar was dug in. And again, this is a radar that sits on top of a tracked vehicle that you can set up and move in about 10 minutes. There's a control van that goes with it. There's all kinds of cables that they hook up to the transporter erector launchers that have, I think, three to four SA-6 gainful missiles on them. Now, this missile system is a very deadly one. The Israelis during the 1972 Yom Kippur War were getting blasted by this thing until we sold them some electronic countermeasures devices that helped jam this thing. And it wasn't uncommon for these straight flush radar systems to set up, radiate for a while, shoot a few missiles, and then fold up and move to a new location, which meant that we had to go through our entire find, fix, track, target, engage, assess cycle all over again when they did that, when they disappeared. Fortunately for the coalition forces during Allied Force... They had a U-2 spy plane that was flying in what they call the senior spur configuration. And the nose of the U-2 has a synthetic aperture radar that takes some pretty incredible radar pictures of things on the ground. And we were able to geolocate this straight flush radar system with the RC-135 and the U-2 cooperating together. The Allied Force Air Tasking Order had built into it what we called a Quick Reaction Strike Package, a QRS package. That package consisted of two F-15E Strike Eagles from two of the Lake and Heath squadrons. And they were armed with what's called an AGM-130, which is a 2,000-pound TV-guided rocket-propelled It's massive. They nicknamed it the whale. And I've got several pictures of it in my library that I took when I was walking around the ramp. The weapon system operator in the back seat of the F-15E Strike Eagle basically drives the bomb through a data link pod. This data link pod is on the center line of the Strike Eagle and sends messages back and forth to the bomb as the Wizzo moves the crosshairs onto the target. Now, it's a really accurate bomb that you can toss way out there because of this rocket motor, but I understand all of them have been taken out of the inventory in like the 2013, 2014 timeframe. Because of course, now we've got GPS guided weapons, the JDAMs, we've got the joint air to surface standoff missile, JASM, all of these different things that we can use that are as accurate, if not more accurate. But as I mentioned, this is a package and one of the rules of engagement was you could not go into the Kosovo area unless you had assets that could suppress enemy air defense systems. And that meant you had to have EA 6Bs and F 16 CJ Wild Weasels. Here's the logistics problem with that both of those airplanes refuel through a different type of system. The EA-6Bs are probe and drogue. The F-16 is a boom. The reason we had to keep a KC-10 airborne was because it has both boom and drogue refueling systems. You always got to think about the logistics of doing this. And again, this is intense because your window may be very small. So you have to launch this strike package, have all of the right information in their strike folder, launch this strike package, send them up to the tanker to get gas. It has to be the right kind of tanker, get their gas, and then go find the target and then put warheads on it. So we had a very small window to go and attack what we had found in this field in Kosovo the weapon system operator in the weapon system operators in both of the strike eagles that were carrying the agm 130 wales 2000 pound bombs had the pictures from the u2 so it kind of showed the general layout of what the sam system looked like in this open field they were able to launch in plenty of time they got up to the tanker got their gas And now the package consists of two F-15Es, two EA-6Bs, the EA-6Bs for jamming radars. They also were carrying what's called a HARM, high-speed anti-radiation missile, and two F-16CJ Wild Weasels, and their whole purpose is to go hunt SAM sites. So now this package pushes off of the tanker and heads east. Sure enough, the F-15E finds the site and drops one of the AGM-130s. I have the video from this strike and put it on TikTok so that you can see it. The first AGM-130 dropped from one of the F-15Es comes down and as it gets closer, remember it's TV guided, it ends up hitting the control van. But while it's in the air, it actually flies over the top of the straight flush radar, which is actually the real target. So the F-15E makes a lap, comes back around, drops his other AGM-130, 2,000-pound TV-guided rocket-propelled bomb, and sure enough, it comes right down on the straight flush radar and in the video of it coming down on the radar, you can see this great big huge splotch mark from where the control van was and where it is now spread out all over the field. And as I mentioned, if you go to at my TikTok page, the two videos of the control van and the straight flush radar are there and you can see my explanation of it. Aviano Air Base's mission planning cell was in this bank vault that was called the wingtip. And the map cell is looking and building the airplan 72 hours out. At the beginning of every map cell meeting, we had what was called the greatest hits over Kosovo. And guess what? We got a hold of the video from those two F-15Es that were flying this particular time-sensitive target mission against this SA-6 gainful site. The F-15Es were there at Aviano and they brought the video over from their targeting pods and from the TV cameras in the bombs so that we could enjoy watching it at the Map Cell meeting. The Wizzo who dropped the bombs actually came to the meeting and gave us his story of how this went down. He shows the video, he says, look, I came down the first bomb comes down hits the control van it actually hits on the steps going into the door and then goes fuzzy because the bomb goes off but he points out that hey look this is how I found the straight flush radar in the TV video from the first bomb because it flies right over the top of the straight flush radar and then he shows what happened to the straight flush radar. Again, the video in it's pretty good. This airstrike was at night, and you can see all the detail of the tracked vehicle, the bogey wheels, the uh, tank tread, and the radar standing up as the bomb comes down and schwacks this thing. So that was really cool, being a part of something like that and actually seeing the end results, getting the tanker set up for this quick reaction strike package to come up, get gas and go after this TST because I was working that night and actually got to see all of this go down. And then the next night at the map cell meeting, actually see the video from the Strike Eagles. Fast forward now to the summer of 2000. I'm the deputy commander of the cadre that is building the KC-135 weapons school, the 509th weapons squadron, as it's called now. We called it the Combat Employment School at the time. We were not validated by the weapons school. And as a matter of fact, they didn't want to have any part of us at the time. But three of us uh, deployed to Kosovo. And now it's 2000. We're still setting up the weapons school. And I got to go deploy for 30 days to Incirlik Air Base, Turkey, to fly Operation Northern Watch missions. Once again, we had... The 336 rocket tiers from Seymour Johnson that were also deployed to Inserlik Air Base flying these Northern Watch missions. Well, guess what? They're armed exactly the same way. They're carrying AGM 130 whales, the 2,000 pound TV guided rocket propelled bombs, on one wing pylon. And then I think they had two GBU 12 500 pound laser guided bombs on the other side plus an external fuel tank and air-to-air missiles on the airplanes. The flight lead of the F-15E elements was configured with these agm 130 bombs. The wingman was carrying all laser-guided bombs, and they were configured with a GBU-10, 2,000-pound laser-guided bomb on the right wing pylon, then had there were two AIM-120 advanced medium range air-to-air missiles on the bottom row of the right conformal fuel tank, which is normally a weapons carriage location on all strike eagles. The centerline pylon was carrying another GBU-10 2,000-pound laser-guided bomb, and then the left conformal fuel tank was carrying four GBU-12 500-pound laser-guided bombs, and then the left-wing p- pylon had an external fuel tank carrying 4,000 pounds of gas, and another AMRAAM and a Sidewinder AIM-9 heat-seeking missile. This was really a dynamic load with these two. And watching them come up to the tanker to get gas, as you can imagine, was pretty cool seeing these different bomb loads on the airplanes. But they did this because we had a lot of pop-up, time-sensitive target kinds of things happen to us during Operation Northern Watch. During this summer timeframe, when I was deployed to Operation Northern Watch flying out of Incirlik, Saddam was firing a lot at coalition airplanes. The coalition being the U.S. and the Brits. And there were 85 millimeter guns. There were SAM missiles, not a lot of SAMs. It was mostly guns that were firing at the coalition airplanes. The Royal Air Force was flying uh, Jaguars that had this Raptor reconnaissance pod on the bottom of it. And they were running around gathering pictures of all kinds of things. And they were getting shot at a lot. So there was a lot of triple a shooting at the coalition airplanes during this time period and we did a lot of these what we called response options on these gun emplacements that were basically time sensitive targets tsts every time we flew a northern watch vulnerability period which usually was about three hours with fighter aircraft fighter bomber aircraft flying around northern iraq they would take lots of video Of things shooting at them through their infrared targeting pods at that time the lantern pods that were on the strike eagles and of course the raptor pods were taking all kinds of video too so in the mass debrief after these three-hour vol periods we got to see a lot of video of radar directed guns other kinds of just guns set up along fields and farmland and so forth just firing like crazy at the coalition airplanes one afternoon when we were flying a Northern Watch vulnerability period, or VOL period as we call it, Saddam's air defenses, particularly the guns, were shooting like crazy. It's like they had just been given thousands of rounds of ammunition and just told to shoot at any coalition airplane. The Northern Watch commander at the time was a Brigadier General who had come from the Strike Eagle community, and his name was Gary Daluski. And he really wanted to put the hurt on Saddam and his air defenses. So they created what we called response options, like response option one, two, and three. And it was based on events of anti-aircraft guns firing, fighters flying, surface-to-air missiles shooting at our coalition airplanes, whatever. And this one particular day, a lot of guns were shooting. And they were big caliber guns, 100 millimeter, 85 A lot of 37 millimeter guns shooting up at coalition airplanes. So all the coalition airplanes were told, get out of Iraq. We're going to execute one of these response options. All of the airplanes leaving Iraq, going to the tanker, gave the mission planning cell and the leadership back at Inserlik an opportunity to kind of go through their approval process of the kill chain because when you're doing something like this, a lawyer is always going to be involved. And that lawyer knows the law of warfare book backwards and forwards. And in many of these TSTs, the final say-so was a lawyer saying thumbs up or thumbs down on executing the strike. And as I mentioned to you, it all comes down to logistics, the logistics of doing this, meaning it's gas. Because we're burning a lot of gas at this time, waiting for this approval process to go through. Sometimes it was pretty fast, sometimes not so fast. Well, the approval for a response option was given, and they actually stated which targets they wanted to have struck. The AGM-130 is a half million dollar bomb. The GBU-10 and GBU-12, maybe ten to thirteen thousand dollars and it was clear over northern Iraq. So we were going to use so the leadership back at Inserlic said, let's use laser guided bombs, save the whales, five hundred thousand dollar whales, and use laser guided bombs on all of these. And if I remember right, we hit three this first time, three different targets. The strike package had to have a way to defend itself. EA-6Bs involved, F-16CJs were involved, F-15C air-to-air, what we call light grays, were also involved to help defend the package going back in, and they all took off and went south together. As I mentioned, the wingman in these two ship of Strike Eagle formations was carrying all laser guided bombs. Two, 2,000 pound, four, 500 pound. The first anti-aircraft gun they dropped on. They dropped a 2,000-pound GBU-12 laser-guided bomb on an 85-millimeter gun emplacement in some trees near Saddam Dam up in the northern Iraq. And of course, it was spectacular when that 2,000-pound bomb hit that location. It cooked off a lot of 85-millimeter rounds after hitting the gun and setting it on fire. The last two of the three guns that they hit, they did with 500-pound GBU-12 laser-guided bombs. Not so spectacular, but those bombs fell exactly where they were supposed to. And that night at the mass debrief, the wizzo of that F-15E Strike Eagle got up and talked about, he went through the whole process of finding the guns, putting the laser targeting pod on them, dropping the bombs and uh, lazing them as they came in on the target. Now, what was really interesting about this particular night is they didn't stop shooting. We actually had another response option that required some time-sensitive targeting on, I think, two more gun emplacements, again near Saddam Dam. And this time, Number four in the Strike Eagle 4 ship, who was also carrying all laser-guided bombs, dropped a 2,000-pound GBU-10 on a 100-millimeter gun and I think a 500-pound laser-guided bomb on a 37-millimeter gun emplacement that had two or more guns that were shooting up uh, at our guys. Now, you can imagine, listening to the radio, the command and control net, you have the AWACS in... The leadership back at Inserlik is talking to the AWACS on the same frequency. And of course, we're listening to all of this go on and the whole approval process going through and them telling the strike eagles, OK, we want you to hit these five anti-aircraft sites because they fit our criteria and the lawyers won't have to get involved. So it's pretty interesting listening to this on the radio. And this is also, like I said, a time-sensitive target because you've got a narrow window to strike these things. But they oppose an immediate threat to the coalition force aircraft that were flying over northern Iraq in this Operation Northern Watch. Now, Operation Northern Watch came to a close on March 17th of 2003, right before the Iraqi Freedom Air Campaign started And the first night of shock and awe, all of those planes had to leave by, I think it was the 17th and they were all out. Man, it was really interesting to kind of watch and listen to all the things that are going on between these strike eagles, the AWACS airplane and the command and control group back at Inserlick Air Base as they were talking through the targeting process. And even though they're anti-aircraft guns, that lawyer still had to give a thumbs up or thumbs down. And at that time, he had a big thumb. Everybody had to kind of rely on him going yay or nay for striking things. And sometimes he gave the thumbs up. Sometimes he gave the thumbs down. But during that month, I think it was May through June, middle of May through the middle of June, I think we had like nine different response options that we attacked some sort of air defense device, whether it be a radar or a gun system or whatever over Operation Northern Watch. Right after 9-11, I deployed to Operation Northern Watch and it was boring. I don't think we fired a shot from the time that I got there, eight days after 9-11, until I came home the first week of December. I don't think we fired one bullet, one missile, dropped one bomb, it was pretty boring. But during this May, mid-May to mid-June timeframe when I was there, man, We were getting shot at a lot and they were going down there and destroying all those anti-aircraft gun pieces because they posed an immediate danger and need to be dealt with. I went home the first week of December, but I knew I was leaving again really soon. I got to go down to Disney World with the family for a little while, which was really pretty cool because everybody wanted to take one of my patches or my scarf or my hat, kind of in remembrance of 9-11. But when I came home, I was only home, I think, about two more weeks. And I left on Valerie's birthday to go to the Combined Air and Space Operations Center at Prince Sultan Air Base in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And I was the chief of the air fueling control team for Operation Anaconda. Now, if you want the background on Operation Anaconda, you can go back and listen to my six part series interviewing all these different people that were involved in Operation Anaconda. But I wanna talk about one particular day in one particular mission where we were pretty sure we had Bin Laden cold. As Sun Tzu state, spies are the most important element in an army's ability to move or maneuver. So all of the signs are there. And I'll never forget the next morning, the Predator video was shown up on a 40-foot screen in the Kayak, and it was showing that compound. It was zooming in, zooming out, zooming in, zooming out. And all of a sudden, all of the bodyguards lined up two lines facing each other, and they were kind of pointing at these two white Datsun King cab trucks. You have to remember, white shows up really, really good in an infrared video camera. And there was a lot of people in these trucks, too. And then just a few moments later, a six foot four gentleman in white robes walks out, walks behind the lead truck, gets in the passenger side and shuts the door. And all the hair just rose up on the back of my neck. It looks like we've got Osama bin Laden cornered. Now, there was another person in white robes that also got in one of the trucks. And we think it was probably a cleric or something like that. But there was probably about nine to 10 people in these Datsun King cab trucks and in the back of both of them, and now they take off. And they're heading on these dirt roads and they're heading toward Pakistan. Osama bin Laden and his group of people are trying to get out from under the bombing campaign that we were doing during Operation Anaconda. Now, if we were going to strike Osama bin Laden, we had to get permission both from Tampa and I think through Washington, D.C., which slowed this find, fix, track, target, engage, assess, kill chain down quite a bit. And again, a lawyer is also involved both back in Tampa and there at the CAOC. But we're pretty sure who it is. And there's one other thing I'll never forget. The person that worked for the CIA actually let me listen to an iridium phone call that Bin Laden made during this time period. And there was also a lot of uh, other communications that he made, not on these iridium phones, but over other type of radios, and he has a very distinctive voice. And I remember this CIA person saying, "Here he is," and I heard him speak. And for a six foot four kind of big guy, he kind of had a he kind of had a high pitched voice. And I, it was just very interesting to think of big guy squeaky voice. But now we're watching them leave. And of course, the predator leaves with them overhead. And they can't see it or hear it at the altitude it's flying at. But again, this is where Sun Tzu's constants come in, where you have heaven and earth. You have to remember there was some kind of restriction on the predator flying through Clouds, uh, the moisture getting in some of the systems or something like that. And of course, these are massive mountains that bin Laden and his entourage are driving through. Some of these mountains go up to 19,000 feet. The Predator and some of the tankers are only a couple thousand feet above the tops of some of these mountains. My good friend Moose was the deputy director on the floor of the CAOC. He was the one executing the campaign plan. And of course, everybody is energized because we think we've got bin Laden and now we're gonna go get him. And he's driving through these valleys and the mountains and we don't get approval. Approval is very slow in coming. And we're worried that he's going to make it into Pakistan where we can't touch him. So our time-sensitive targeting window is closing and closing rapidly. Dotson King Cab truck drivers, whoever they are, were very skilled at driving at high speed through these valleys. They weren't going that fast at this time. But Moose had to figure out, how do I slow the timing of this down so that, A, he doesn't make it into Pakistan, and B, we have more time for getting the approval? And this is where my good friend Moose, his operational and tactical expertise and experience came into play. You see, we had a B-1 flying during that time period. And the B-1s were carrying different kinds of bombs in the three different weapons bays that they have on it. And in one of the weapons bays, they had the GBU-31 2,000 pound bunker buster bomb. Because remember, we're dealing with caves at this time. And that bunker buster bomb was an excellent weapon for them. So as these trucks are approaching the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan in this one valley all of the mountains in that area were made out of shale and Moose had the B1 drop two penetrators on each side of the valley walls and basically caused this massive landslide that cut off bin Laden's path out of Afghanistan. And I'll never forget watching on the Predator video, these trucks and they're going like about 35, 40 miles an hour come to a screeching halt. And you know that the brakes are on because there's dust and dirt flying out from underneath the tires and the hoods of both trucks go down as the tails come up. And the guys that were in the back of in the truck beds all go slamming forward into the cabs. Man, isn't that crazy? I can bring that image back to my mind in an instant. And all of a sudden, these drivers start backing up and turning around. So they're going, and now they start taking off. The difference is truck number one now becomes truck number two, and truck number two now becomes truck number one. And we're focusing on the second truck now because that's the one that's got bin Laden in it. They get down to the bottom of this valley area and they split up. They go in two different directions. And of course, Moose is saying, keep the predator on that truck. Keep the predator on the truck so we can keep watching it. And as we're watching it, and it's going like 55 miles an hour, 60 miles an hour over dirt and rocks and shale and all these kinds of things. And guys are bouncing around in the bed, but they're holding on. The truck comes to a stop next to this kind of mountain area, valley kind of area. And we're thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, what? What are these guys doing? And all of a sudden, three guys get out of the cab and start running up to the tops of the hills, some pretty steep hills, and Moose goes, wait a minute. They're lost. They got themselves lost. Now we've really slowed this time-sensitive target down, and sure enough, while they're trying to figure out where they're at, And this is over the course of, I think, 20 minutes, 10 to 20 minutes. The approval comes through for us to drop on that truck. And now everybody is on their toes because we're going master arm on, we're going arm hot, we're gonna drop bombs on this thing, on this truck that's got UBL in it. The really interesting thing, Osama bin Laden, UBL, never got out of the truck. And that was kind of puzzling to us. We know, He knows we have him dead in our sights and we can kill him, but that door hasn't opened yet. The king cab doors, the back rear doors have opened and guys have gotten out of the truck bed and they're running up the mountains trying to figure out where they are, but that door never opened. And an F-18 from the John Stennis drops a 500 pound laser guided bomb that actually hits about three feet from the right rear axle of that Datsun King cab truck and blows it into the air. (laughs) It does about three endos as it's flying through the air and stuff and people are falling out of it and it actually lands upright, but pretty smashed and pretty messed up. And of course we can see things and people laying around it that are struggling for their lives. And those three people that deployed up the mountain now start running toward the truck. And one of them opens the passenger side door. And that person in the white robes actually falls out onto the ground. And then we see this Al Qaeda fighter taking the white robes off of Osama bin Laden. And we're like going, it's got to be him. It's got to be him. And then all three of these fighters and One other person turn, level their guns up and start shooting. And what had happened was we were able to bring in a special forces Chinook from the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment that had a whole team of special forces and Rangers in the back and land it pretty close to that truck. And this firefight ensues. Man, isn't that crazy? I can still picture this in my mind. And this is in March of 2002. It's 20 years later and I can still see all of this. Well, this firefight ensues with the helicopter. And of course, the special forces and the Rangers get out, level those four guys and kill them all. And one of them walks right up to the guy that's got the white robes kind of in his hands. And then we start listening to the radio comms of the Special Forces Group. And we find out it's not UBL. It's not Bin Laden. It was a decoy. We got decoyed. And in fact, during Operation Anaconda, Usama Bin Laden does escape into Pakistan where we can't touch him. But this time-sensitive mission on UBL was a success. We had everything pointing to, it's him. Even seeing this six foot four white robe guy get into the front seat of that truck. But it wasn't him. It was a decoy, a very good decoy. And of course, he makes it out and lives quite a bit longer. Operation Anaconda comes to a close. We wiped him out, but it was ugly. All of you know the Battle of Roberts Ridge. You can go back and listen to those episodes. And I go home, but I'm not home for very long. I end up deploying again down to the island of Diego Garcia, refueling B-52s. Great, great deployment on this island out in the middle of nowhere. And all I'm doing is flying with a brand new co-pilot, a very experienced boom operator. Life was good. I come home and I'm told, okay, you're going back to the chaos. We're doing what's called Operation Southern Focus. We're preparing the battlefield of Iraq now. We figure we're going into Iraq, we're already working on the air campaign plan, that becomes the Chakana campaign plan. And then one day, General Mosley comes up to me, Sluggo, you criminal! And I go, what, what did I do? He says, you've been in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia too long, you can't be here over 180 days, you're at 174, you gotta go home, what I'm gonna have you do is kiss mama, play with the kids through Christmas and New Years, and then I'm gonna bring you back to 9th Air Force Headquarters, to help us tighten up the air fueling plant. I said, okay, fine. I actually deploy with the 9th Air Force folks from Sumter and Shaw Air Force Base on a wonderful Continental 777, and the flight crew of that 777, sorry, lump in the throat, were fantastic. The flight crew let us come up into the cockpit as we're flying over there. If you can't trust military guys on your airplane, who can you trust? All of the flight attendants were just fabulous, gave us their email addresses and their phone numbers telling us, if your families need anything, please don't hesitate to email us or call us. Uh, The flight crew did the same thing. That crew, I, I don't remember their names, was just fabulous. Hats off to them. It was Continental then, now of course it's United Airlines, and that crew that flew the Ninth Air Force folks from Sumter, South Carolina, and Shaw Air Force Base over to Prince Sultan. Well, we're getting ready to do the shock and Awe campaign. And things are getting really intense. And one night, about 8 o'clock in the evening, we're working some pretty tough tanker issues. We don't have the whole bed down figured out yet of where all the tankers are going to go, how they're going to get there. We're working out some of the final details of opening up Akrotiri when Q, the F-117 liaison officer in the master air attack plan cell, the planning cell that does all of the planning for the air campaign, is standing in front of me. He says, Sluggo, I need gas and I need it tonight. And I go, well, of course you do, Q. Everybody wants gas because everybody thinks they can win the war. What makes your request so special over everybody else's? And he looks at me and he smiles and he goes, because it's the big guy, I think is what he said. And all of those who are around me, the hair just raised on the back of our necks. Now, I mentioned to you spies earlier, about inward spies. And you can find this in some of the books that talk about the Iraqi campaign. The CIA had paid off some spies in Saddam's inner circle Sun Tzu would call them converted spies or inward spies. And one of them was with Saddam that night. Now, the CIA had a name for this group of spies that they had turned and now were double agents. They called them the rock stars. But this particular spy that was apparently with Saddam Hussein at this time and had one of the CIA's Iridium satellite phones. I think his call sign was Rokan. I don't know. I can't remember how to spell it. But he called up to their site in northern Iraq and said that Saddam and his sons sometime during the night were going to be at a place called Dora Farms. And looking up Dora Farms, it's at a perfect hook in the Euphrates River. And it's some place that He was known to frequent, but he hadn't been there in a while. But they said, this is where he's going to be. And so Q laid this all out to me and says that all of the national security folks and the president are meeting right now on how we're going to do this and if we should do this. Because if we do this, it could possibly end the war because we'll get Saddam and his sons, Uday and Kusai, all in one place. And I said, so what's the package? And he goes, F-117s and EA-6Bs, obviously, and uh, F-16 CJs that are probably already airborne that'll need gas. And I said, do you have an approximate time of when this is going to happen? And he goes, no. So now we don't know the timing of Saddam and his son's visit to this Dora Farms complex. We just have to be ready to execute it. I take him downstairs to our ops desk and I introduce Q to one of the best tanker planners and execution people I've ever had on a team. And we call her Strux. And I told her, Q gets gas whenever he needs it. I don't care who you have to cancel. And of course, that raises her interest. And I tell her the F-117s and the EA-6Bs may be striking Saddam Hussein at a target in downtown Baghdad tonight. I said, Strux, this takes precedence over everything. And of course, she has questions, good ones, that we didn't have answers to. When was the biggest one? And I said, I don't know, Strux, other than it's going to happen. They're going through the approval process in Washington, D.C. right now. But when they get approval, these guys are going to launch and they're going to need gas. Remember, it all comes down to logistics. Smart men study tactics, brilliant men study logistics, and all of Sun Tzu's factors are coming into play. Method, discipline, commander, moral law, everything, because we're trying to figure out, you know, is striking him a legitimate target and his sons? He's the head of the military, so that gives a thumbs up for the strike. All of these things are going on in this approval process. There's numbers of books that have been written about this meeting of general chuck myers the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff leon panetta who says hey we got an incredible opportunity meeting with the president everything that you can read in other places and so i'm not going to go through that but we finally get approval in the middle of the night and this is after i've left and my counterpart jerry i wish i could find jerry because he was a great great counterpart in all of this as the assistant chief of the air fueling control team jerry if you're out there listening to this man you did great work on this Dora Farm strike that night. They get approval. The F-117s launch out of Al-Udeed. The EA-6Bs launch, believe it or not, off of one of the aircraft carriers in the Northern Arabian Gulf. And Dan Hampton talks about this in his book, Viper Pilot. He was one of the F-16 CJ pilots that got tagged to flow in to this airstrike. And again, the logistics of all this, you have to have an airplane that has boom and drogue. The KC-10 is perfect for that. And sure enough, we had a KC-10 up at that very time that could refuel the CJs, Wild Weasels, the EA-6Bs and the F-117s. And I think their call signs were Ram-11 and Ram-12. They leave the tanker, Head toward Baghdad. They're carrying new GPS guided weapons in the F-117s. And sure enough, the lead F-117 can't get his bombs to tune into the GPS signal. He's having his wingman read him all the checklist items. They go through it, I think, once or twice. Finally get the green light on the bombs. And they do a team strike on Dora Farms. Now, little background here. To make sure that the Iraqis did not know that we found out that we knew where Saddam was, they added a Tomahawk land attack missile strike to the Dora Farms attack. And I can't remember how many. It was quite a few, though. 12 or 14 Tomahawk land attack missiles came in on top of Dora Farms just a few minutes after the F-117s dropped their bombs and came out. Pretty amazing to put all this together. And think about this. I'm eight o'clock at night, Baghdad time, and they actually pull off this mission just before the sun comes up. Because the lead F-117 pilot said, hey, we gotta be out of Baghdad before the sun comes up. And they take off like five minutes 12 minutes before their drop dead time and make it up there just as the sun is starting to come out. It's civil twilight, getting lighter. And a matter of fact, the F-117s land uh, early in the morning with the sun up. Well, all of these things come together. And of course, we're all thinking, hey, this TST was successful. We dropped bombs, put a lot of T-LAMs in there. And we're thinking, we may not have to do this. We may have gotten him. And all of those hopes are dashed when Saddam shows up on TV with his Coke bottle glasses, reading some prepared statement in some bunker room somewhere. And then, of course, Operation Iraqi Freedom and the Awe campaign begins just a few days later. This is like Wednesday night, Thursday morning that the Dora farm strike happens. The shock and awe begins at 9 p.m. local Baghdad time on Friday night. So once again, we missed, but we sent a very clear message to Saddam Hussein and his sons. If we find you, we're going to put warheads on foreheads. On the 7th of April, 2003, we got another tip of a possible location in Baghdad of Saddam Hussein. There is an army group there called Gray Fox, officially known as the Intelligence Support Activity or just known as the activity. On this day, they supposedly got a telephone or some type of electronic communication that included Saddam saying that he was going to be in the Al-Mansur district of downtown Baghdad at a particular restaurant that he enjoyed going to called the al Sa restaurant. We knew that near the al Sa restaurant was also one of his special security operation locations just within blocks of the Saw restaurant. Once again, this was developing over a period of time. His motorcade apparently went by some special operations or marine special operations reconnaissance unit that was in the area operating. And of course, they said, hey, looks like him, looks like him. And they continued on and went underground, I under, if I remember right, into this special security office. Now, at this point in time, Saddam Hussein knows that anybody that has one of these particular iridium phones is a double agent. And we understood that caught a couple of his people with these iridium phones and was taking them to this special security office to execute them. That was part of the story leading up to all of this. But again, we have a very short window to go after him. One of the things that we had done in the air tasking order at this period of time is we put B-1 bombers on what we called X attack or on-call attack and how the bomb bays were configured again three bomb bays in the forward bomb bay they had gbu-31 mark 84 bombs in the center bomb bay they had gbu-31s with the blu-109 penetrator warhead and in the back they had a brand new cluster bomb we were using called cbu-105 sensor fused weapons and this was the first war that sensor fused weapons were used in the cbu-105s and they performed spectacularly this bomb had the nickname uh, Succession of Miracles because we thought in order for this bomb to work, with this bomb, there was a succession of miracles that had to happen of the clamshells opening up, the bomblets being poured out, uh, spinning up, doing all of their things. There's 40 of these. They look like hockey pucks inside this particular CBU-105 canister that would spin up and they'd look for targets with their infrared and send like this molten spall of magnesium through engine decks. So the B-1 on X-Attack had all of these different weapons that they could use. Well, there was a B-1 that was up on X-Attack that had been servicing other targets. That B-1 was told, go down to either Waibo or Wano, which were in Western Saudi Arabia, get gas and go strike this target. They were given the coordinates and the Lieutenant Colonel that was doing all of this, the weapon system operator. You can look him up. His name is Lieutenant Colonel Fred Swain, and he goes through the whole story of this. The AWACS gives him the coordinates. He confirms the coordinates. They're in downtown Baghdad in the Al-Mansur district, where we know that Saddam is known to frequent. And he says to the crew, hey, this may be the big one. They get their gas, and they run beat feet like at 500 knots back up to Baghdad to the Al-Mansur district. They dropped two GBU-31 Mark 84s and two GBU-31 penetrators on these two coordinates. People thought we were bombing the restaurant. So this B-1, I think it was call sign Slate 72, leaves the air refueling area, beats feet up to the coordinates opens the bomb bay doors and out come four 2,000-pound bombs on the coordinates. And if I remember right, again, this is from memory, the special security office had an underground area, which is why they dropped the bunker busters, but it had a building over the top of it, which is why they dropped the Mark 84, the 2,000-pound bombs. So they drop on it, And there's this big, massive explosion, obviously, because we just dropped 8,000 pounds of weaponry on everything. And now we're waiting. We had a Global Hawk that was up flying in the area, and they retasked it to go look at those target coordinates. Now, here's a funny story about this strike. General Mosley, the Combined Forces Air Component Commander, was not in the chaos when this happened. I believe he was back in his room. He'd worked a very long shift and was getting some rest or he was eating or something like that. And they called him back. By the time he gets back, the strikes already happened. They've already dropped the bomb. I happen to be in the battle cab as he walks in because I'm talking to one of the colonels that works time sensitive targets and high visibility targets like this and his call sign is junior he is an f-15e wizzo great guy great american general mosley comes into the battle cab looks at junior and says so tell me what happened well sir we got a really good tip several tips that he was going to this location B1 came 500 knots over the top of the city, dropped four GBUs, two penetrators, two fat boys on these coordinates, and there's a massive explosion. They're already talking about it on CNN. They're showing all this damage and they're showing the 60 foot by 30 foot holes in the ground, all these different things. And General Mosley folds his arms and says, Junior, tell me you didn't blow up the restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> And Junior goes through the whole spiel again. Sir, we got these tips. The B-1 came up, dropped its bombs. And General Mosley looks at him again and says, Junior, tell me you didn't blow up the restaurant. He said, sir, I'm pretty sure the entire city block is gone. And General Mosley goes, dang it, Junior. And he gets really pissed. And we're all like staying in at attention because we've never seen General Mosley like this. Junior, you blew up that restaurant? Well, sir, we dropped four 2,000 pound bombs on the coordinates that are fairly close to it. And with a straight face, General Mosley looks at Junior and says, Junior, when we take over Baghdad, where am I going to go to get a chicken schwerma? <laughs> If Saddam goes to Al-Sahar restaurant, that's got to be the best chicken shawarmas in Baghdad. And you blew up the best chicken shawarma place in Baghdad? And he's going, yeah, sir, I think that's pretty much gone. But we're waiting for the global hawk to go overhead. And of course, he's kidding by now. And we're all kind of relieved that uh, he isn't mad (laughs) That wasn't the kind of guy General Mosley was. I've mentioned in a previous episode, 6F-117s didn't get air refueling, and he said, fog of war, sluggo, fog of war. And again, this is one of those fog of war kind of situations. The global hawk gets overhead, takes pictures of it, and there's just these massive holes. And of course, news crews are showing up, and there is actually palm trees impaled in the buildings around where these 60 foot holes are in the ground. They're pouring water into them, there's fires, all kinds of things. And it looks like, man, we've really made a mess out of this place. But we find out, in fact, Saddam leaves just minutes before the B-1, Slate 7-2, gets up there and drops these bombs, and we miss him. He shows up the next day out of his car, talking to this big group of people, you know, waving his hand around, and, and they're all rooting and hollering for him. And we go, okay, well, we missed. Now, to continue on with Junior, years later, 2006. So this is April 2007. In June of 2006, I PCS to the Air Force's operational test and evaluation headquarters at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque, New Mexico. I show up there before my family does. I drive on base. And as I drive on base, I see who the air base commander is and I start laughing. And I drive straight to the air base commander's office. And I think the secretary's name is Diane. And I walk in and I said, hey, is Colonel Junior in his office? Well, sir, you know, who are you? He's got a busy schedule and he's got a lot to do and everything. I said, I'm just somebody that he knows, somebody that he worked with. And I hear out of his office, Diane, who is it? And, and he's got a very distinctive voice. And I turn to the door, and I can't see in the door because it's 90 degrees to me on this wall. And I say out loud, Junior, tell me you didn't blow up the restaurant. <laughs> and he says, There are only a handful of people that know that story. And he walks out and he sees me. He goes, Sluggo, what are you doing here? And I said, Junior? It's great to see you again. I'm PCSing down here to work at the Air Force's Operational Test Evaluation Headquarters. All of his people in his office all go, wait a minute, this is a story we haven't heard? And they ask him, uh, sir, uh, you want to tell him that story? And he goes, I'm going to let Sluggo tell you because he was there. And I tell him the whole story about General Mosley, arms folded, Junior, tell me you didn't blow up the restaurant. Junior, tell me you didn't blow up the restaurant. Sir, the restaurant's gone. Dang it, Junior! And, and the whole thing. And of course, everybody's laughing and, uh, at this story. But again, that was another one of these time-sensitive targets that we missed him. And we just missed him by minutes. We had pretty solid intelligence that he was there. Went right by this Marine Special Operations team that said, yep, it's him. That's his entourage. That's his motorcade. That's what it looks like. Go into the building and then come out, I guess the other side and we missed. And unfortunately there were some people killed during this strike and and but we felt that it was worthy of going after because we had such good intelligence that he was there. Now a lot of people say, you know, it was the Al restaurant. It wasn't the Al restaurant. It was these this special security office that was behind it. And the Al restaurant is still up and running. As far as I know. And after the war, it was still there when Shakana was over with. So we did not blow up the restaurant. We blew up buildings really close to the restaurant within a block or two. And if I read some of these articles right, it blew out all the windows for numerous blocks. I mean, it was four 2,000 pound bombs, 8,000 pounds of weapons coming down on this place. But again, he he gets out of it. We miss him, and he leaves. Of course, the war comes to a close. We topple his statue in Alfredo Square, but we don't have him, and it takes a couple months, eight or nine months before, again, the Gray Fox group gets kind of a beat on him, and sure enough, he's hiding in some spider hole up in Tikrit. And you have to remember, everything's familial. And he's from the Tikrit area. Saddam Hussein's from the Tikrit area, and he was hiding out up there in this home and and had this spider hole that he'd hide under. I remember, again, being on the floor of the chaos, waiting for this thing to happen. But you know what? Every once in a while, it does work when we're hunting some of these people. And the last one I wanna relate to you, I was not a part of, I've read a lot about it, And there was an article that was done, I believe by a Mossad agent. He's gotta be somewhere in the Israeli intelligence community. And he wrote this incredible article about the drone strike on Qasem Soleimani. That was a name I told everybody Everybody to remember. Qasem Soleimani, Major General in the Iranian Republican Guard. He's responsible for the deaths of probably about 600 Americans during the insurgency and all of the things that were going on afterward in Iraq. He was very arrogant. He was a brilliant commander, though. We understood how he dressed. We even knew the vehicles he was driving in because they were Land Rovers that he'd bought in Baghdad. And I'm assuming that our special operations folks not only had those things bugged, but probably had geolocation devices on them also. Qasem Soleimani was given the nickname, the Shadow Commander. And I think it was because either the New Yorker or the Atlantic writing an article about him that's called The Shadow Commander, a really, really good article about who he is and what he was doing. He was basically running Iran's proxy war against the Americans in Iraq. And at Christmas time in 2019, he was responsible for an attack on our embassy in Baghdad. And the U.S. intelligence community had sure knowledge that Qasem Soleimani, the Al Quds forces, was responsible for this. President Trump saw all of the evidence, all the intelligence, and said, okay, we need to take this guy out. And they do on the 3rd of January, 2020. He comes into Baghdad on an Iranian airline. I believe it's called Maher Air. He goes to Damascus, has meetings with Hezbollah and Al-Quds forces in Damascus. And he's got another Hezbollah leader, I believe it was Hezbollah leader, called Mohandas with him. And they fly back to Baghdad late at night. The airplane's delayed in Damascus for about three hours, waiting for him to come back. So he's flying through Syrian airspace into Iraqi airspace, our E-3 AWACS has probably got him painted and can watch him coming. We probably have fighters that are flying near him or around him. More than likely, special forces units are tracking him wherever he is. And of course, there's probably listening devices and geolocation devices on these two up-armored land rovers that he drives around in. And see, he never changed His signature, he was very sure the Americans wouldn't do anything. He's very arrogant about it until this night. He lands on this 737 in Baghdad International Airport, gets in the two land rovers, comes out of Baghdad Airport, and there's this highway to the south of the airport that's a four-lane highway, two lanes each way, and a drone strike takes him out. And the drone strike uses two Hellfire missiles and takes out both of the land rovers and it kills Qasem Soleimani and this Abu Mohandas guy just Right there, And of course, it makes all of the news headlines. President Trump gets a lot of flack for taking this guy out, but he was a legitimate target because he's responsible for the death of at least 600 American service members from the end of the Iraq war up until this time in 2020 when he's taken out. And he would always say, hey, you know, you guys aren't going to touch me. But his signature was so apparent he would wear the same clothes he would wear this same ring on his hand. When his vehicle was struck by this Hellfire Missile, There happened to be some reporters driving on the other side of the highway. They immediately stopped when the two Land Rovers blew up and started taking pictures. And there's a really famous picture of Qasem Soleimani's hand and that ring. And those pictures started flashing everywhere. And we confirmed that, in fact, we got him because you could see that rather large ring on his his hand. Now, Sun Tzu said, we probably had some inward spies, outward spies watching all this going on, tracking him pretty closely, not only tracking his vehicles, but tracking his airplanes and his movements. And we were able to pinpoint where he was going to be at a certain time and fired these Hellfire missiles, which destroyed these two Land Rovers that he was in. This is, again, one of those things that that may have been planned in advance saying, okay, well, we need to have these forces in place ready for his movements and so forth. And when we saw him move and leave Baghdad for Damascus and then back to Baghdad and get him on that highway where we knew there would be no collateral damage from firing these missiles and blowing up his two vehicles, then the military took the opportunity to strike. And folks, if you want to read a really, really good book on how drones do this i encourage you to go out and buy mark mccurley's book called hunter killer it's really really a good camel's nose under the tent lieutenant colonel mark mccurley was the squadron commander of a predator and reaper drone squadron at creech in not too long after the shock and campaign, I believe is when this happened, is when we started doing drone strikes on some of these high profile terrorists that were in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it really proliferated during the Obama administration where we could follow these people for a long period of time, because these drones would be up over the top of them. And Mark McCurley talks about the drone strike in, I believe it was Yemen, on Anwar al-Awlaki, the American al-Qaeda guy there, and he goes through it all. It's a really, really fascinating look at how these drone strikes take place, and I highly recommend this book to you. So when Qasem Soleimani was taken out by these drones, I had all this background from reading that book and how they established patterns of life, follow the target, and then the approval process in Washington, D.C. I have no heartburn about Qassam Soleimani being taken out, folks. He was a viral anti-American hater and, as I mentioned, was responsible for the deaths of Of at least 600 American service members. He made no qualms about the fact that he was marshaling forces against the American, you know, great Satan. And the opportunity presented itself, and we had hard evidence that he was in Iraq moving, and we had a pretty good location on him, and we took him out. Now, I do want to mention something in the drone community. They now have a new Hellfire missile that does not have a warhead on it, but has these razor sharp blades that fold out of it. If you Google AGM-114 Hellfire, it shows all of the different variants and actually gives a list of different targets they've been used on. This new variant is called the R9X and it's been nicknamed the ninja missile or the flying Ginzu. It has six razor sharp blades that pop out of a missile that is going faster than the speed of sound and just rips everything apart in any vehicle that it hits. They have been using this version for a while now because it's low collateral damage. It doesn't blow up, it it doesn't have a warhead in it, it just has these six really sharp, fairly long blades that come out of the missile and just tear everything apart that it hits. In 2017, an Al Qaeda leader by the name of al-Masiri was taken out by one of these Ginzu missiles. And then Al-Badawi, who was uh, connected to the USS Cole bombing in 2019, was also killed with one of these R9X flying Ginsu missiles. Folks, if you really want to understand how this drone warfare is done, go read Mark McCurley's book. Oh, there's one other thing too. The webpage called the Intercept. There was a bunch of drone warfare whistleblowers that brought them classified information and basically leaked out how the drone program worked. And if you go to the Intercept and search the drone papers, there's about a four or five episode series that talks about how the American drone program worked and how we went around taking out, assassinating, however you want to call it, these important leaders to these terror organizations around the world. If I had to give you my lessons learned from being involved in these time-sensitive targeting events, the very first one obviously is intelligence. We have acted on really good intelligence and we've acted on bad intelligence and have done airstrikes that have missed the intended targets. Saddam being the biggest one, obviously, Osama bin Laden in Afghanistan too. Our intelligence has gotten a lot better looking at targets for long periods of time through drones and establishing these patterns of life and being able to predict when we might have a narrow window where these targets can be engaged. Second lesson learned, the United States military has a lot of assets that they can employ, not just air assets such as the B-2 bomber, the B-1 bomber, F-117s. We've done TSTs with F-15s, F-16s, and of course with drones. The raid on Osama bin Laden's compound with SEAL Team 6 members and Rob O'Neill That was a time-sensitive target and a TST. That was very successful. And go and listen to Rob O'Neill's talk that he gives on going after Osama bin Laden. He didn't think they were coming home. A lot of these guys said, hey, I understand why we're doing this, but we might not come home from this, which was really fascinating to listen to. Because Rob O'Neill mentions kissing his daughters goodbye, thinking, I may not see them again. One of the things that I used to teach at the Joint Forces Staff College was, there's, there's a three-legged stool that military operations stands on. And that is joint integrated fires, persistent intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance, and continuous humanitarian operations. And I've talked to you about two of them here, joint integrated fires and persistent intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. The joint integrated fires piece has been air and ground and in many ways electronic too, going after these time-sensitive dangers against American forces or these high visibility fleeting targets. The third lesson I would pass to you is there are a lot of moving parts when you're doing this On the Dora Farm strike against Saddam Hussein, there were a lot of airplanes that were launched that were going to support this while we were waiting for approval from Washington, D.C. EA-6Bs off of an aircraft carrier, F-16CJs that were already airborne, the two F-117s that took off from al Udeid flew this four and a half hour mission using a new GPS guided bomb that had never been used before. And sometimes you just have to sit and wait for all of the pieces of the puzzle to get together. When you're talking intelligence and this persistent intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, or persistent ISR, a lot of that information is very perishable, meaning these targets are going to move. Saddam was moving about every four hours. Osama bin Laden was moving regularly. The spoon rest vans that we were hunting out in the desert of southern Iraq would set up for a few minutes, radiate, take a quick picture, dadlink it back, and then would move again. And we would have to start our kill chain all over again every time the target moved, which tells us they knew what our kill chain was and what our process was. It's not hard to figure out, I guess, because we kind of showed our hand on our process so they could figure it out. Fourth lesson learned. Not all TSTs are successful. We missed Saddam. We missed Osama bin Laden. We didn't miss Qasem Soleimani, but it sends a very clear message to your enemy, you are a target. And if we find you, we are going to put weapons on you, whatever that weapon might be coming from the air, coming from a helicopter, SEAL Team 6, whatever it might be. If you're an enemy to the United States and you are actively trying to kill Americans anywhere in the world, chances are pretty likely if we get some good intelligence on your location, some of our assets are going to come find you. But we know that those enemies are not going to be there for very long. And we often have to act very quickly. I think the fifth lesson I would pass to you about these TSTs is the incredible teamwork and coordination that this takes. My very first podcast, I talked about aviate, navigate, and communicate. And through this whole process of putting together the plan and the team and the assets and the weapons and the intelligence is done by extremely motivated members of the U.S. government and the U.S. military, all working together to prosecute. These targets. And we have a very short window to do some of these things. Now, we obviously had plans on the shelves that we could pull off when one of these time sensitive targets popped its head up. And we had a process that we had to go through for getting approval, launching assets, all those kinds of things. And there's a number of times where we launched assets and said, Nope, King's X on this, we ain't doing it. And a number of times where we go, Okay, we're doing it. And we've been both successful and unsuccessful, It's an incredible team of people from numerous agencies and our coalition partners too that are trying to prosecute these targets and put these plans together in very quick fashion. And of course, if it's air assets, they always needed gas. And so myself and one other member of my team that was usually a grad from our weapons school were always involved in these things and were always there for these things. Man, I didn't even talk about going in and getting Jessica Lynch and saving her from the clutches of the Fedayeen and the people that were beating her up. And that's a story for another day. I hope that you have a greater understanding of when you hear in the news that we've gone and struck some terrorist group in Libya with B-2 bombers carrying 85, 500-pound bombs. That that was done in a very narrow window with a lot of planning behind it, a lot of logistics, and an incredible team working together of numerous agencies that are coming together, working out the plan, executing the plan, so that we can keep Americans safe here at home, so that the battle doesn't come to America. To all of my listeners out there, I wish you a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. To all of my Jewish friends out there, I hope you have a very happy Hanukkah. I probably won't do an episode between Christmas and New Year's as I have family here in town. I hope you've enjoyed this episode on time sensitive targeting and how America goes after its enemies when we have intelligence that points in a right direction, a very narrow window, and we can put a plan and assets together. This and previous episodes of the Lessons from the Cockpit show can be found on my website at marcusera.com under the podcast pull-down box. All episodes of the Lessons from the Cockpit show are supported by Wallpilot, custom aviation art for the walls of your home office or hangar. So please folks, go to wallpilot.com. There's 127 ready to print, ready to order right now graphics of airplanes from World War II, all the way up to modern fighters and bombers. Very detailed, printed four, six, and eight feet. You can peel them off and stick them to your walls, or a lot of people just frame them and and put them up that way. We also do custom orders. We can draw your airplane from your unit with whatever weapons load you want on it, with your name on the canopy rail, your tail number, for those of you who flew in the military, or those of you who just like a particular airplane we had one customer wanted a particular airplane happened to be two-seater put his oldest son's name under the front seat put his youngest son's name under the back seat and we sent it off to him his kids loved it go take a look at wall pilot custom aviation art for the walls of your home office or hanger at wallpilot.com Our next episode is going to be with a Tomcat radar intercept officer who actually got to fly in the first Top Gun movie, was an instructor at Top Gun and flew Tomcats for a very long time and has two really good books out. Thanks for joining us. Again, I appreciate all of you tuning in, downloading, and listening to these episodes. Go to my website. That's where they're all at. And this is number 50. Have a good day.